I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello again, my friend, and welcome to another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Episode 70, in fact. You catch us on a milestone episode. We're not doing anything uh, out of the ordinary here. We're not doing a clip show or anything for our 70th episode, but I just wanted to point out it's number 70. It's a nice round number. We love round numbers. They give us comfort as human beings for some reason. Just seeing that zero on the end makes it kind of an important deal for us for some reason. We think that the 70th episode is more important than the 71st episode or the 72nd or the 79th, but then the 80th is more important than the 70th. So you can try to figure that out if you want. I, it's beyond my pay grade. Anyway, I'm Clint Davis. I talk movies and television from my closet on the outskirts of Columbus, Ohio, here every month with you on the Stream Police Podcast. And in just a bit... We'll be welcoming back into the show our good friend, my man and yours, Andy Sedlak. And uh, he has been uh, man, he's been a busy man for the past uh, month. We didn't hear from him on the last show. He's going to give us a little uh, uh, update on that. I'm sure he's been all pent up because uh, when he doesn't have the outlet, just like me, uh, you know, it gets a little tough because we just we got to say this stuff. So uh, we do it for the love of the game. We don't uh, make any money off this show. And... Uh, that's not really by choice, but it's just a, a sad fact of life. But um, we are glad to bring it to you because uh, it's just fun for us, and we like to sit in front of microphones and pontificate. So anyway, if you want to ever reach out to me, you can get me all the time at theclintdavis at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram, same handle, Mr. Clint Davis, M-R Clint Davis. And if you follow me on Instagram, um, you can find out what movies I'm watching as I'm watching them. Every time I watch a movie, or almost every time anyway, I don't do it when I go to the theater because uh, I don't want to get uh, my privileges revoked for like bootlegging movies or something on my phone, but I always take a picture of the screen and kind of write what I'm uh, what I'm checking out. Sometimes I give you some quick thoughts on it, but usually not. Just no context, uh, here's the movie that I'm watching tonight. That's typically how it goes. So if you want to know about that, what I'm checking out, follow me at Mr. Clint Davis on Instagram. Man, I'm telling you, since the last time we spoke, uh, I mean, no easy way to work this into a kind of a lighthearted show about entertainment, but um, that uh, shooting in Dayton in the Oregon district, uh, Andy and I both, I mean, he's lived in, he's lived in Dayton for a long time and, uh, I, you know, lived there kind of during my formative early adult years. And I mean, that's where I met my wife. And that's, uh, 
uh, not in the Oregon district itself, but just in Dayton. But the Oregon district was one of those places that uh, Andy and I went all the time when we were both in school. We both went to Wright State. And, uh, I mean, we were, we'd go there, you know, middle of the week, whatever, always on the weekends as well. And, uh, just always had a good time. It's such a great place. One of those really rare, like perfect little downtown areas that has character, but it also has tons of things to do, uh, places to drink that aren't expensive, no covers, just bars you can walk in and out of most of them anyway. Uh, and no crime. Like you never, ever felt anything but safe down there ever. Um, I mean, always, you know, you would always see cops down there, but it wasn't like a ton of them. And it was just a really unique place. Cars would drive through it. So it wasn't just like one of these closed off little places for pedestrians only. It was, it was like a living, breathing, just it's, it's just, I'm not I'm talking about it like it's in the past tense, but for me, cause I haven't been there in a while. That's it would, that's just how it always was in my mind. And I actually worked down there for several years, I hosted a, a sports talk radio show at a station uh, right down there in the Oregon district. I mean, a uh, hundred feet away from the bar where, uh, the, where people were shot out front of. And uh, I mean, it's just, it's just insane. That one really hit, I know both of us hard. And I mean, these shootings, no matter where you're listening to the show, if you're listening to it in America, you can, you can point to one that's happened in your, like in an area that you're familiar with, I'm sure. But uh that one, you know, really hit close to home uh, for us, especially, I know. So, uh, yeah, so I just wanted to mention that. I mean, nine people dead in less than 30 seconds, just absolutely mind-blowing. So, uh, yeah, just a day that unfortunately will never be forgotten down there. But, uh, I mean, that is just – that's a beautiful place to go and hang out. And I hope that uh, the road goes on forever and the party never ends down there in the Oregon District. All right, on that somber note, let me go ahead and get my stogie lit up here, sitting in my closet talking to you about movies and television. I like to light up before I really get into it. All right, we're good to go. Let's uh, put another entry into our canon of the greatest TV show theme songs of all time this week. With a new pick for our 43rd entry into the uh, non-existent museum of greatest TV show theme songs of all time. This time, you know what? I, I realized as I was looking back, I have a whole list of all the ones that I've already put into the list of the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. And I have a list of ones that I haven't used yet that have been sitting around on the list, you know, just waiting for the perfect moment to give their induction. And I realized that we have not done a good old kick-ass theme song from the 1970s in a while. So let's go back to that era. So if you grew up in the late 1970s, there is no doubt that you're going to remember hearing this theme song coming from a TV at somebody's house as a kid on Friday nights. This show was a staple of Friday night television for six years in the late 70s from 1974. It's NBC's The Rockford Files. In your face, catchy, rollicking, instrumental, as any good cop show's theme song should be. 
The Rockford Files was a popular series about a private eye in Los Angeles named Jim Rockford. So this was one of those really good, you know, the setting is L.A. You got all these great L.A. landmarks. You got great cars. Just, you know, kind of a cool, you got like a big man's man character um, who's the lead of the series. And James Garner plays Jim Rockford. And that is just one of many legendary roles that Garner would end up playing in his career. Not his first, obviously, but, uh, you know, just one of the best of his entire career. For six seasons and more than 120 episodes, the show opened each week with a different answering machine message. So it had this little gimmick of the series would open like a shot of Rockford's answering machine and somebody would be talking on it. It would be like a client or a friend or an enemy or somebody had a message for Rockford. And it usually didn't have anything to do with the story of the, seri- of the show, of the episode. But th- that, would just, that was the way it would start. And then it would launch into this track as you put your feet up for another case. This kick-ass theme was uh, actually just called The Rockford Files. It didn't have any kind of name. It was just called The Rockford Files. It was written by one of the all-time gods of TV theme music. He might actually be the all-time god of TV theme music, if we're being honest with ourselves. The great Mike Post, a name that I'm sure you've seen at the front of some TV show that you love because he's done the theme songs for so many great ones. This was one of his early successes, actually, one of his very first, and he would it would be followed by him writing the themes for shows like Hill Street Blues, another great theme song, Magnum P.I., The A-Team, Quantum Leap, NYPD Blue, my beloved show, and, of course, he did the theme song for Law & Order, which is arguably his most famous uh, entry into the world of TV theme songs. Might be the most famous TV theme song ever written. Several of those are in the running for being selected as the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week, but this is actually the first Mike Post tune that we've honored in this segment. I was shocked to realize that. Along with Mike Post, the song was co-written by TV theme song legend Pete Carpenter, who worked with Post for years late in his life. Uh, There was like a 30-year age difference between these two guys, but they worked beautifully together. Carpenter did music for some of the old-time sitcoms like Andy Griffith and Bewitched. Um, So this was just kind of another notch in his old belt. And it's cool to see like a guy who worked in the old black-and-white days of TV meeting up and working with a guy so much younger than him, having a good partnership, and he's a guy that would go on to be, you know, to write themes for some of the iconic shows of the 90s of, like, the new age of TV, like NYPD Blue and, like, uh, Law and & Order. And, uh, I mean, it's just really cool. So you've got, like, 50 years of television history right there between these two guys in uh, the songs that they've written together or separately. <laughs> Like some of the other 70s and 80s theme songs that we have honored here on this segment, the Rockford Files theme was actually released to radio as a single in 1975. To me, I, again, that's just crazy. Like, I don't, Andy's never talked about this in his segment, but uh, the instrumental radio back in the like in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 50s too, I guess, but definitely in like the 60s and 70s. When you think of like when you think of 60s and 70s music, you think of 
kind of cutting edge rock and roll stuff, right? I mean, you think of the greatest classic rock tunes came out of those two decades, like the ones that you still hear constantly on the radio. They came out of the 60s and the 70s. Some of the greatest bands, you know, to ever come out of America and other countries, but especially America, came out in those decades. But there was also like a lot of instrumental music, soft instrumental stuff like that. AM radio was not talk radio back then. It was being used to play a lot of instrumental soft rock kind of stuff. AM radio was was where you would hear these songs. And TV theme songs were being released on radio. I mean, how weird would it be to just turn on the radio today and like hear the song, the the theme song from like Stranger Things being played on the on the you know top forty countdown or something like that, like sandwiched between a, a song by Taylor Swift and a song by Ed Sheeran. Here's uh, the theme song from Stranger Things. I mean, how weird would that be? But that's what happened in the 1970s. So yeah, this song hit radio in 1975 as a single, and it cracked the top ten of the Hot 100, and was actually on the chart for 16 weeks. So for 16 weeks in 1975, you could hear this song. On the radio, and then it went on to win a Grammy for Best Instrumental Arrangement. Uh, so this thing was a genuine phenomenon all its own. And what it, what was it? It was just a little instrumental TV theme song. The series itself, The Rockford Files, won several Emmys and actually was not a huge rating smash. I was surprised as I dug into uh, researching this segment uh, that it wasn't a big rating smash. It was never a number one show. It actually was never even a top ten show during its run. As I said, it was always on Friday nights, so that's kind of one of the graveyards of TV always has been. Uh, but the highest it actually ever reached was number 12 during its first season, and it fell back in ratings steadily with every new season, but it peaked at number 12 in 1974. Uh, it stayed on for six seasons. People loved the show. It remains one of the most beloved private eye investigation kind of shows among people who watched it, thanks to uh, you know a bunch of colorful characters, great cars, great action scenes, and James Garner just in a perfect leading man performance on TV in that era. Um, and, you know, just one of those quintessential kind of L.A. TV series. So we're giving it some extra love here because it had a kick-ass opening number, and that's our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. Rockford Files, a classic from NBC in the late 1970s. Did you ever see that show? Did you ever watch it? It's not really uh, on uh, reruns anymore. I don't feel like I see it around. Maybe it's on one of those. I, I feel like it's one of those shows that would be perfect to go on one of those old-timey stations that you see that is like the you know 5.2 channel um, on your like with your antenna that old people always watch, you know, they, they show a lot of good stuff on those issues like Westerns and stuff like that. But I feel like the Rockford files would be a good show to kind of air on one of those little, one of those little cheesy networks that, are, that has the little dot uh, in front of its number. So I told you the theme song from the Rockford files was a genuine cultural phenomenon back in its day. 
Let's talk about a show that is a genuine cultural phenomenon in our day right now. And who knows if in 30 years from now people will still watch this show or have anything, have any interest in it. But I'm talking about Stranger Things on Netflix. Uh, I've reviewed each season so far on the show as they've come out. And uh, let's let's get into season three, as it's called, Stranger Things 3. And what I mean when I say, are people going to still care about this show? Think about what it's all, what, what the whole drive of this show is. The biggest drive of this show is the nostalgia of the 1980s. And it's not even for people who lived in the, the 80s. I mean, I was born in the 80s, but I was born like the end of it. So I don't remember being alive in the 80s. I certainly don't remember. I didn't watch E.T. until this last year. So I had never even seen that movie. The Goonies, I saw it, you know, years ago, but I didn't really care about it that much. Uh, you know, it's just th those kind of classic touchstone Spielberg directed, produced 80s kids uh, movies and shows and stuff like that that are so influenced in Stranger Things or have influenced Stranger Things so much, I should say. That's what this show is about. It's for people who watch those and get that warm kind of fuzzy feeling or people who know about those and get that warm fuzzy feeling. So in 30 years, I mean, are people going to still care about a show that's nostalgic for the 1980s? I mean, I kind of look at Stranger Things as like Happy Days because Happy Days, to me, when I was growing up and Happy Days reruns would come on, I thought Happy Days came out in the 50s. Like, I thought it was a contemporary 1950s show. That's just what I didn't realize it was made in the 70s. I didn't realize it wasn't that much older than me. But it just seemed old because it was like all set in the 50s. It was all nostalgia for the 50s. That was the point of it. And that was why it was such a hit show because it hit at the perfect time. People were like 20 year, years old, 30 years old, 40 years old who had grown up, who had lived through the 50s, and they were you know, remembering that time through rose-tinted glasses. And that's how the, how Stranger Things is, I feel like, for the 1980s. Not quite as rose-tinted, but still. So when kids, like when, when my son, like when Emerson gets to be 30, is he going to give a shit about Stranger Things, or is it going to be seem like some kind of old-timey? Because nobody watches Happy Days anymore, right? I mean, that's not one of those shows that has kind of had another life uh, among people of later generations. I just don't think it has. I don't think really anybody has has uh, kept the torch for happy days alive over the years. So, I mean, I've never really gotten into it. I've seen episodes, but it, you know, it was just, it was okay. It just used to air on Nick at night. It wasn't one of my favorites. So it wasn't one of those shows. I felt like I need to watch this. You know, it's not like the Mary Tyler Moore show of the same era where I'm like, I need to watch every episode of that show because it just looks good and important and groundbreaking. You know, happy days kind of looks like the same kind of same old stuff. But anyway, that's so, so stranger things to me, limited appeal. But for us who are watching it now, it is definitely a huge hit. Netflix has no, doesn't release their viewing information, but obviously they keep making it. It's an expensive show. It's got tons of special effects. It's got a, a pretty big cast who have become very famous, so I'm sure they're paid well compared to other Netflix shows. And Netflix has been canceling shows left and right these days, no matter how well they do um, among critics. They just have been canceling them left and right. So Stranger Things would get the axe if it wasn't being watched by a lot of people. But this show gets talked about all the time on social media. It gets tie-ins with tons of different companies, merchandise. I mean, I was just at Burger King the other day, and there's a Stranger Things thing on the menu. So it, it's just it's all over the place. But talking about the actual content of the series, it's been a mixed bag for me. Not one of my favorite shows of all time. But I have to say, 
I enjoyed the third season of the show more than I have enjoyed any other season of the show yet. And there's a reason for that. And I don't think it's because this season is particularly better than the other seasons. The reason that I have I enjoyed this season more than the other ones is because I finally come to grips with the fact that Stranger Things is not the next Mad Men. It's not the next Breaking Bad. It's not the next Wire. It's not the next Sopranos. You know what I mean? This is not some great prestige drama. Stranger Things is a popcorn show that exists for entertainment purposes only, and that is how I needed to start finally watching it. When I watched the first two seasons, especially the first season, I was thinking of it as some kind of new drama that was going to be that should really be taken seriously. You know, that I should be taking mental notes on, that I should remember all these things that happen and all these little details and you know, who's going to, what's going to happen with these characters as they go on? Are they going to, you know, grow and change a lot as the series moves on? That's what I was thinking. I was thinking of it through the lens of someone who thinks about TV that way, watches it, wants to talk to you about it, takes it very seriously. And I was always left kind of flat and disappointed by the show because it just seemed like the characters were flat. It seemed like it was really more about the atmosphere and it was more about, uh, you know, nostalgia. And it wasn't really, you know, the, the villain and the evil monsters never made much sense to me as far as the explanation of what are they, what is going on there, you know, all that stuff. So I was thinking too much about that stuff. I wasn't just enjoying what was on screen as much as I should have been. And I've enjoyed the other seasons, but I just always felt like, yeah, it's not really one of the best shows on TV. And But I enjoyed this season a lot more by just simply having fun with it. We just Beth and I just watched it together, and it was fun to just sit with and eat dinner and watch the show. Um, so what elevates this above other light shows that are like it, these entertainment, these popcorn entertainment shows, is the production values, which are just as good as any movie that you're going to see and the care taken with how every episode looks and sounds. That is where stranger things really to me becomes a special show. Um, it's just looking at, look around the frame of any episode of stranger things. Just look all the way around it, especially in the past couple seasons. First season was a more limited budget. They weren't sure what it was going to be, but it still looked good. It was still a cool looking show, but you will see so many little details about the time period and the characters' lives and the way the, the carpet looks and the way the paneling on the walls looks. And it'll take you back to that time. And, and, and I mean, you'll just see VHS copies of, of movies that you had when you were a kid, classic toys, you know, just things de like little details all over the place, posters on the walls that really make this show look like you know look real and it make it look like it was set in that time period not a, not just a, a fan letter to the 1980s plus the soundtrack the soundtrack to this show i don't know how much money they spent in this past season on the soundtrack to like the rights for songs but i felt like every episode like almost like multiple scenes per episode this season had like some big time 80s number playing in it some big pop number some of them sounded to me like a little not right like a couple of them sounded like they may have been covers really good covers so maybe they skated by doing that but a few of them were definitely the real versions um but that i mean the soundtrack is pure porn for anyone who loves 80s pop and the original score is one of my favorites on tv in the past 20 years i'm not trying to be you know to throw hyperbole out there but I just, I love the soundtrack to this show. Always have. Its theme song is really good to me. As far as those really short theme songs go, this is one of those that's really short, like Breaking Bad's was or like Lost was, which wasn't even really a theme song. 
uh, or uh, Better Call Saul. But this one is one of the is a really good theme song for being as short as it is. It just really always gets me in the mood. I never like to skip it. I just like to listen to it and and watch the visuals and uh, I, I just I love it. And the whole score is good. Uh, it's just perfect, subtle, p- period perfect synth music that never distracts from the action, never gets in the way, just adds to the scene so much. So it's one of my favorite things about Stranger Things. What I will really compliment this show on, as I said, is the look and sound of it. Just look at it. The special effects look great. They don't ever really look cheesy. The costumes look really good. Um, they look high quality. You know what I mean? They look like they really came out of these characters' closets. They don't look like they came off a, a rack at a studio somewhere. So it's just a, a good lived-in show. Like, Hawkins looks like a real town to me. Another thing to absolutely love about Stranger Things is the characters. The characters are just like they've become friends at this point. You like to hang out with them. Now, some of them I like more than others. Most of the guys on the show, except for Dustin, most of the guys, I think, are just annoying just weenies honestly is the way i would describe them um i mean the girls are 11 and max are much better to hang out with than you know the boys are but i like dustin and uh i mean i like the group they're it's a they're they're a cool group they're fun to spend time with i mean it's a it's a good group of people i don't want to like punch them or anything it's just i just think there are a lot of they're just weenies you know what i mean i mean they're just teenage boys so it's it's kind of not a group that i want to spend a lot of time with but anyway I got to compliment the Duffer Brothers, the guys that created the show and, and produce it and, and write, you know, several of the episodes, direct several of the episodes every season. Because it, it would have been really easy for these guys to just never change the cast. Because the first season was such a phenomenon and everyone loved the cast. Everyone loved the actors from the first season. They became like beloved friends immediately to everyone who watched it. But I've liked the characters that they've added with each new season a lot. I think they've done a really nice job with that. Adding new, new characters into a show that's popular very tricky i mean you can think of any show that you like and and that you have enjoyed for your time watching tv and i'm sure you can think of a time when they've added characters and it it messed up the the chemistry and it just didn't bring anything to the table and you were kind of mad to see them you're like who is this guy we don't i don't want this guy here he's not he's not bring back the old characters i don't want to see this stupid guy just show me the old people i mean that's just how we are we're creatures of habit we like the old characters but the the additions that they have made to this series uh, have been really good. I feel like Sadie Sink as Max, you know, the redhead, she has added so much attitude to the series and given the show a girl character that wasn't just like some weirdo like Eleven is. I mean, Eleven is a, she's just a weirdo. Like that's her character type. She was raised in a lab, you know, she doesn't know anything about being a human being. She's a vessel, basically, that has to learn from the other characters how to be a human being. And that's kind of, they finally shine a light on that in this season a little bit with Max telling her that she doesn't need to just listen to Mike all the time. She needs to go out on her own and be her own person and figure out what she likes, not just what they like. So I really liked that this season. I thought that was a good little message there for anyone who's watching it, girls, boys, whoever. Uh, who may be watching the show, men and women, you know, just be your own person. Don't uh, just take what everyone else says and, and kind of go that way. So, you know, even though in that case she was listening to Max, but Max wasn't trying to tell her how to be. She was just telling her, you know, you need to you need to go out on your own and figure out what you like. So I just feel like Max has been probably my favorite character on the entire show, and she was added in in the second season. So they've done a great job adding her in. She's got her own personality. 
Sadie Sink is easily one of the most confident actors in the entire series. Um, I mean, she has never delivered a line where I felt like she wasn't sure of herself as she was saying it. Also, Dacre Montgomery, who plays her brother, Billy, he's been a great addition to the show as well. He came in in the second season also. He's been kind of like a little bit of a heavy um, throughout the two seasons. Unlikable guy, but uh, he does a great job playing that part. He gives the show some eye candy as well, which is also played on in this uh, latest season. And this show doesn't really have much eye candy. I mean, it's kids. You know, so, uh, they, you know, you got to have a, a character like that who people can tune in and kind of uh, have a crush on him because who else are you going to really have a, a crush on in this show? It's not really that kind of a show. So uh, I've really enjoyed both of them as additions, and they had a lot to do in this uh, new season, especially Dacre Montgomery. He had a ton to do in season three. But this season, they may have made their best addition to the cast yet when they brought in Maya Hawke, who is the daughter of uh, Ethan Hawke and... Uh, Uma Thurman, and uh, she ended up playing Robin on the new season, who was the uh, girl who worked with Steve at the ice cream place, wore the, you know, dorky, like, pirate sailor outfit, uh, and scooped ice cream with him. She immediately became one of my favorite characters and actors in the entire cast of the show. I just felt like she was so natural, so charming. Uh, even the character, the character itself of Robin, a little bit one-dimensional. Uh, the the reveal that she had in the end was, uh, I don't know that it needed to be like a big surprise thing like that. Uh, the way they did it was kind of weird. Um, but hopefully she'll be given more to do and we'll get to know a little bit more about her. We'll get to see her you know, at home. We'll get to see kind of what she's into uh, in the next season as well. Honestly, though, even if Robin is a little bit one-dimensional, that's pretty much how every character in Stranger Things is. I mean, as I said before, the way I used to watch the show, thinking about the characters as these, you know, great, round, three-dimensional, dynamic people who we get to know tons about. And, you know, not just what movies they like and what board games they like to play and stuff like that. And the fact that they have a crush on somebody else. You know, I mean, really getting to know what makes them tick, what kind of person they are. That's not what this show is. So if you resign yourself to that, then I think you'll enjoy it a whole lot more. This show is more about the journeys and the battles and the friendships. This is not. This is about as far from a character study as you're ever going to get. It's just a. It's really just about the plot. Just about plot. Just about battles. Just about friendships. That's all. It's not this deep character-driven thing like the series that I typically love. But it's just a fun ride that we get to take every year or so for about eight hours in between news of another mass shooting. So for that, I'm glad we have it. Andy did point out uh, when he was watching this season. He pointed out that. Uh, Robin learns Russian during her lunch break at the ice cream stand. And he was right on about that. That did make me laugh when it happened. Uh, she pretty much learned the entire, well, at least enough of the Russian language to be dangerous, to crack a code uh, in the course of a lunch break. But these are the kinds of things that I expect from Stranger Things, honestly, just as I'd expect them from a movie like The Goonies or E.T. You know, if I was watching The Wire and McNulty all of a sudden learned how to speak Russian in a day, I'd turn it off and quit the show for good. But in this series, it's probably about the 20th thing on the list of most ridiculous things that have happened in this one single season alone. So I'm willing to get over it. There are some things I am going to knock uh, Stranger Things Season 3 for, though. Uh, for one, the town of Hawkins, like I said, it's, it's, it feels like a lived-in town, feels like a, a, a genuine setting for the action of this series, feels like a real place, but it just feels way too big. 
And the people are way too attractive, right? I mean, everyone in this town, this is a town in Indiana, all right, Midwestern as it gets, middle of Indiana. This is close to where I grew up, close to where I live in Ohio. I've been to Indiana plenty of times. And everyone there does not look like the people in Stranger Things. In fact, like, almost nobody does. So pretty much everyone in town is good-looking and thin. So that you know kind of takes me out of it a little bit. And they have a local newspaper with about 10 staff writers and editors and enough news to cover that they're able to just laugh off potential story ideas from an intern. You know, a decent-sounding story about rats being infected by some disease, they're able to just laugh at it. You know, and I get it. They did it because, you know, she's a woman and that was they were doing a plot about, oh, look how sexist the uh, look how it is. You know, when you're a woman and you're coming up in business and you, the things you have to deal with. I get that. That was so heavy handed, though. All these, you know, fat guys sitting around an editor's room smoking and laughing. Uh, I mean, it was just so like, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it was just so obvious. Right. It just felt like something out of a kid's show, not something for adults, which sometimes this show blurs the line. And is it for kids or is it for adults? I think it is for adults, but uh, it def- definitely sometimes when you have scenes like that, it just feels so like it hits you over the head with a freaking skillet trying to drive home a trying to drive home a little bit of subtext that some subtlety probably would have would have been fine with. Anyway, uh, you know, I, so that kind of stuff, I just, you know, Hawkins just feels way too big for me sometimes in this show. And. I do have to rip Nancy herself uh, because every time she opened the door to the dark room when uh, she was at the newspaper office, I wanted to scream at her because, I mean, that would basically, anyone who knows anything about photography knows that that would be like if Jonathan walked over to her typewriter and lit the page on fire when she was in the middle of a story. And, I mean, the setup for the dark room was just ridiculous, just leading right out to a hallway, not like a dark curtain or something like that to where you could, you know, kind of come and go as you please, but that's a whole other thing, you know, entirely. Also, a thing I kind of keep ripping this show for is the the motivations of the villains. I just don't understand. What is everyone trying to do in the Upside Down exactly? What's the what's the draw for going there? Hasn't there been enough evidence now that uh, this place is really bad? It's just full of weird monsters and no one, like nothing that you would really want anything to do with. I guess it has something to do with getting powers for everyone like what 11 has i mean i guess that's kind of what they're going for i i don't know but i just don't understand why they want access to this place after all the awful things that have come out of it i'm kind of ready for the show to find a new driving force for its villains you know instead of some new scary group is trying to get into the upside down this year and uh i'm just i'm kind of kind of over that as the uh, point for the villains so we'll see what they do next season now that the action is maybe moving away from hawkins a little bit one last thing on Stranger Things Season 3, uh, I, I do applaud the Duffer Brothers for giving every character something to do in this season. Uh, the special effects looked better than ever, and the set piece of the mall was actually fantastic. I really thought that was a good, you know, again, sticking with that theme of 80s nostalgia, the shopping mall, the fact that they had not done a shopping mall plot yet is surprising to me. And this set looked really good. It was a really good-looking mall. The signs they got from the old stores and, uh, I mean, the the signs they designed that looked like the ones from the old stores and just the actual stores themselves looked real and the food court looked good. And it just looked like a good set. This was, like, really good set piece 
filmmaking that was going on here. So I was uh, I really appreciated that a lot. I liked the whole mall thing. Also, the subtext of the failure of local businesses at the hands of the evil corporation, like the mall's ownership group. You know, I mean, that's about as deep as Stranger Things has ever gotten. So I give him a little credit for trying to do something a little topical and a little timely as well, even if it was just kind of background stuff. But yeah, Stranger Things season three, I really enjoyed it. Once, you know, this is kind of like Dr. Strangelove, except for with Stranger Things, it's how I learned to stop worrying and love this show because it's not Mad Men. It's not The Sopranos. It's not a character study. It's just a piece of popcorn entertainment. We always need them. And there are a lot of them on TV. You see them all across the networks. they got to fill time. And the streaming networks need them too. And this is just one of those kind of shows, but done on a higher level with great production values, with fun characters, with, you know, kind of fun adventures, interesting situations. I just would like to see them get out of Hawkins, get out of the upside down, and maybe something a little bit more colorful next time. I don't know. I'm just kind of getting tired of the old dark monster shtick because it doesn't really end up scaring me that much ever when hardly anyone ever pays the price. Like just so few characters have really paid the price for battling with these big monsters that they honestly don't seem that dangerous to me. These kids have beaten them over and over again. So what's, what is there really to be scared of at this point? But all eight episodes of Stranger Things Season 3 are now on Netflix. All episodes of all the seasons of Stranger Things are on Netflix as well. Have you watched it? Did you have any thoughts on the new season? Did you like it more or less than the other seasons? Do you not care about this show? Let me know at theclintdavis at gmail.com. T-H-E Clint Davis at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your observations on the season as well. Isn't this a nice surprise? What are you doing here? Shopping. This is her new style. What do you think? What's wrong with you? You know she's not allowed to be here. What is she, your little pet? Yeah. Am I your pet? What? No! And why do you treat me like garbage? What? You said Nana was sick. She is. She is. She is she's sick. Yeah, she's sick. sick. She's sick. She's super sick. That's why we're here, actually. Yeah, yeah, we're shopping. Not for us, but for her, for Nana. For Nana. Also, we're here to get a gift for you. You lie. Why do you lie? I dump your ass. All right, I'm going to pass things over to Andy. I'm going to come on back and talk to you about a couple movies that I watched recently. One that I thought was absolute trash. Another one that I think could be and maybe should be uh, the winner of Best Picture this year at the Oscars. And I'll run those down for you coming up next. But let's take it back again to our good friend, Andy Sedlak. Take it away, my friend. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ah, hello, you knuckleheads. Good to be with you. Look, I've, I've had a busy couple months. Uh, let me um, let me fill you in real quick. I, I actually uh, accepted a job in Cleveland, so I will be moving there from Dayton. My life has been um, all about initial offers and inspection reports and down payments and listings and showings and listings and showings and listings and showings for the past 30-odd Days. I mean, I, you know, I, I can't really complain. I knew what I was getting into. But uh, but that is why I wasn't with you last month. That being said, it is definitely good to be back. Feels, feels very, very good to be back. Just like Eminem said. It feels so good to be back. back. You know, I thought Clint did a nice job last month of covering for me. Uh, the songs that he added to our ever-growing playlist were top-notch, so nice job, my friend. Uh, but, you know, let's be honest, I never doubted you. I never doubted you. No way, man. All right, let's get on with it. Get on with it! I'm 31, so I am at the age where age itself begins to cross your mind. Got a few years under my belt. A few experiences behind me. And I've been through different seasons in life. I've seen consistencies and uh, discrepancies through those seasons. And in music, age. Age is a funny thing. If you want to be profitable... You better be either young or old. Young or old. The most popular live act in the world right now, and by that I mean the most profitable, is Elton John. He is 72 years old. Who else is big on the road? Metallica where the average age of its members is 55. Fleetwood Mac, average age of its members is 72. Kiss, average age 64. And Bob Seger, who is 74 years old. These are veteran artists, older musicians. They have been in the game, not for years, but decades. The Stones are on tour right now. That's always a profitable thing for the music business. We all know that the Stones have been around forever. Mick Jagger just turned 76 years old. In fact, the average age of the artists headlining the 10 most popular tours this year is 52. A year ago, that number was 48. 
The year before that, it was 41. The most popular acts on the road are getting older and older and older. And for some reason, no younger acts are coming along to balance that out. They're not quite breaking into the upper ranks of that quote-unquote blockbuster live tour. More and more every year, touring is for veteran artists. The most profitable tours belong to veteran artists. It's not like younger artists are a non-entity in the music business, so what do they do? New music is what they do. Old artists can't get anything to stick. Anything that's newly recorded, none of that will stick. But younger artists dominate things like streaming. Releasing new music, in other words, is what younger artists do. So far this year, here are the artists most consumed by listeners. Most consumed. And by that, I mean... Uh, this could include uh, music, actual, actual music purchases, streams, and YouTube views. From the top, Ariana Grande, she's 26. Billy Eilish, she's 17. Travis Scott, he's 28. Juice World, he's 20. Post Malone, 24. Khaled, he's 21. In fact, the oldest artist... In that top 10 list of most consumed musicians is Future, the rapper. He's 35. Actually, I didn't even know he was that old. Recording is a young person's game. Touring is an old person's game. At least if you want to make money. Why is that? You know, you could argue it's because the fans of veteran artists have more money to spend. Kids, as we know, are broke. You could argue that veteran artists have had more time to build up a fan base, decades versus years. You could argue that veteran artists simply have the capital, something younger artists don't have, because recorded music doesn't pay the bills like it used to. But radio doesn't play those folks anymore, pop radio, I mean. And whether you're talking about touring or recording, it's interesting that middle-aged artists aren't particularly successful in either realm. Being a middle-aged artist is like, like being in limbo. Touring is for vets. Recording is for youngsters. Where do the middle-aged artists fit in? Well, Justin Timberlake is touring He's successful at it. He's 38. Pinky is popular live. She's 39. Drake. Drake I don't know. Can you call Drake middle-aged? He's 32, so I hope not, but, but it's all relative. Anyway, Drake is extremely popular on streaming services. Those folks are the outliers. Outside of the folks I just mentioned, there are virtually no older artists who rank among the most streamed. The only exception is Queen. That's right, Queen. Bicycle, bicycle, bicycle. I want to ride my bicycle, bicycle, bicycle. 
younger listeners have gravitated toward uh, old recordings by Queen. Obviously, it's because of the success of the Bohemian Rhapsody movie. Queen is the only veteran act. Hell, it's the only rock act consistently ranked among most stream artists of this year and last. Now, when it comes to touring, Travis Scott has done well, but who's the big outlier? Who is the younger musician who packs stadiums? Who is the youngster who bucks the trend of live music belonging to older artists? Can you guess? Take a minute. It's this guy. The club isn't the best place to find the lovers of the bar is where I go. Me and my friends at the table doing shots, tripping fast, and then we talk slow. Ed Sheeran is 28 years old, and so far, his tour is the sixth most popular that is profitable of 2019. He's virtually the only artist in his 20s that cracks the list of the 10 most popular tours and maybe the only one with the exception of Taylor Swift that can be counted on in the years ahead to bring down the average age of the world's biggest live performers. What makes him an outlier? Well, it's because his appeal crosses over to adults. Yes, He's popular with kids, but moms also like him. Dads can stomach him. So that means he reaches people with that disposable income. If you are parent-approved, then you're bankable. Taylor Swift, NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, Britney initially, Jonas Brothers, One Direction. That's the whole key. Reaching kids and the ones that have to buy their tickets for them and take them to the show. Because Sheeran falls into this category, it means that uh, he's building up a fan base at twice the rate that his contemporaries are. And actually, he's also earning money, which will give him future capital to do more things like this in the future. And he's not playing with a band. The dude literally plays stadiums solo. It's unheard of. Using loops and pedals well enough to fill... And entertain a stadium crowd. It, it's it, I'm not necessarily into it, but you have to sort of grudgingly respect a guy who can one-man band it at Wembley Stadium. When I was six years old, I broke my leg. was running from my brother and his friends Tasted the sweet perfume of the mountain grass I rolled down I was younger then Take me back to when I found my heart Broke it, hit me friends and lost them through the years Alright, let's switch gears Clint mentioned last month that I had been listening to the new Bruce Springsteen album a lot, so much, in fact, that I couldn't do the show. Yeah, it's partially true. I have listened to it a lot, and I like it. I like that new Bruce Springsteen record. But here's one thing I want to mention. It's not accessible. It is not accessible. At the same time, I don't mean to say that it's inaccessible, Uh, And there is a distinction, so let me explain. A lot of people um, may listen to something like Captain Beefheart or Frank Zappa and say that music is just inaccessible, like 
I don't get it. It's weird. It's strange. Bruce's new record is just not accessible. Meaning that he doesn't lay it all out for you immediately. You really have to listen to the album three, four, maybe five times before you hear all that it has to offer. You hear what's obvious the first time around. And then you start to notice the nuances after that. Some people don't have the patience for that. And that's not a judgment. I don't always have that kind of patience either. Sometimes I just need to bang off the bat. This record will not give that to you. It makes you get to know it. The album is called Western Stars, by the way. New Bruce Springsteen record called Western Stars. Here's how I explained the album to somebody recently. I said, it's like like when you look at a painting. And at first, you notice um, the obvious things. You notice uh, faces, location, background. But when you really start to look at it, Maybe you notice that little thing there in the corner. Hmm, why is that there? Maybe you notice uh, you know, text along the base of the statue. Hmm, what's that mean? Maybe you take a harder look at the faces in the painting. What are they saying? What do their expressions mean? That type of analysis just isn't possible if you take a quick look at the painting and then move on. So if you take one listen through Western Stars... You won't notice the subtleties. As far as I can tell, there are two undisputed masterpieces on the album. Undisputed. Impossible to argue against. One is called Tucson Train. It's about anticipation and second chances. Hard work will clear your mind and body. The hard sun will burn out the pain. They're looking for me, tell them, buddy I'm waiting down at the station Just praying to the 515 Oh, God, it's creation Just to show a man can change Now my baby's calling in on the Tucson The other song that's a total masterpiece is called Moonlight Motel. And this is really an example of, of, of what I was just talking about. You know, the first time I heard it, it, it sort of breezed past me. I, didn't, I just didn't give it a thought. Then it started to sink in. I put it on repeat one night while I was eating dinner. Put a bottle of Jack out of paper bag. Poured one for me and one for And it was one more shot poured out in the parking lot to the moonlight hotel. What other albums require multiple listens? Records that didn't hit you immediately, but slowly revealed themselves over time. I'll mention another one. Bob Dylan's Oh Mercy. What comes to your mind? Shoot me an email at sedlakjournal at gmail.com. S-E-D-L-A-K, the word journal, all squished together at gmail.com. 
let me know, and I'll mention that next month. All right. As mentioned, we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. It is ever-evolving, ever-growing, ever-maturing. Each month, we add five songs to the playlist, so you can, uh, you can find it on Spotify and enjoy it. Okay, go ahead and search Stream Police. should come right up. Aside from Bruce, I've been listening to a lot of rap lately. A lot of new stuff out there right now uh, that's really pretty good. So all of these songs are hip-hop songs, and all of them have been released in the past month or two. Brand new stuff. First, this is called Nerd by Baby Smooth. Yo, crazy back in school, I used to copy off the nerds. Load into my site, used to load up to my serve. Found the dark web, now I can't never ever serve. Nah, I feel like a nerd when I go out and work. And this cost me 400, don't get makeup on my shirt. Second, I give you Crowns for Kings by Benny the Butcher. See, I was good with the bad guy roll. Water in my jewels, put them on and baptize hoes. Walk in my shoes, we got shack size soles. Huh? The flatline nose, whack rap niggas wearing half size clothes. What's the dilly? I'm only about six hours from Philly. That's an hour on the plane, I make it three in the Bentley. My bitch keeps saying I'm famous, but it ain't hit me. I'm too ghetto, mellowed out. This Hollywood shit tricky. See, before I knew it, A and R, I was waiting hard back when Nicki Minaj was in a training bra. Then it's other fish. By Murs in Ninth Wonder. Uh, it took a second to register up in my brainium, my dome, my head, my skull, my cranium. My eyes, I had enough. It was time to do some talking. I had to creep through the hound dogs that were stalking. This Lemmy caught me peeping. This means she wasn't sleeping on who I was. So she crept in like a hawk in a minute's time. We adjourned to the floor. Ooh, I hit a high note because of the way that she was walking. We got into the groove. We didn't bust no hip hop moves. I just kept it nice as well. Next thing you know, we got together. Word, I thought we'd be forever. Didn't have an umbrella. Now we soaked this stormy weather. Whether two birds of a feather fly or fall and be together, never simping. I live your love life limp. There'll be no suicide attempts for the slim trim kid. Cause you know there's other fish in the sea that is. In the sea, sea, in the sea that is. You know there's other fish in the sea that is. And no detectives by the underachievers. Niggas love to scream at players while they sitting in the rafters up and feeling get embarrassed like when cats ripped up disaster. I'm like half Marilyn Manson, another half a young scholastic arrogance, a sick vicious confidence, a young Jagger. I'll be rolling stone. Rest in peace to people whoever overdose. We third and gold. I'm Brady off the snap. You know we going home since last year. Been in my zone. Give all hell no quarter zone. That nigga popped his weakness. Show the code. He would let him know. Twisted off the yet. While twisting up the pack, used to cop it by the half P and move it in the trap. Finally, we're gonna add Cold by Slater. Just sat in your shoes, feeling man. Damn. Used to be my dog, we went separate ways. I got doors up in heavy gates. Caught a body, hit the freeway, going out of state. Got a budget for the lawyer, we gon' beat the case. When it's drama time, you want no static. Your man's died, all you do is get his name tatted. It was gang gang to your right hand man's ready with the bland bland to your dome, leave his brain splattered. Niggas used to love me, now they diss me. Me and Shorty used to fuck around, now she miss me. Sipping 1942 till we tipsy. In the all blue bench, him and Nipsey. Yeah. And I'ma let the instrumental cry. 
smoking on exotic, looking at the sky. And I be in my head, so I wonder why. Water the real niggas gotta fucking die. That's it. Thanks for your attention. Thanks for welcoming me back. <laughs> Talk to you shortly. Behave yourselves. Pass it back to Clint. Peace. All right, I'm back here in Columbus smoking my stogie. And I got to tell you, Andy, the five songs, this might be the first time ever that the five songs you added to the playlist did not include a single one that I know. I didn't know any of those songs. Usually I know most of them, at least a couple of them that you throw out there, but didn't know any of these. You said they were all new. And, uh, man, I've been slacking on my rap listening lately. I kind of uh, got got away from rap the last couple months and have been back in country again. I go through these spells, man, where I kind of get stuck on a genre and then I go to the, go back to another genre. And when I do hit rap, I always hit it hard, and it's, it's like all I'll listen to for a couple months at a time. But I've been slacking on my rap listening lately. You're going to have to check out all five of those tunes. Good stuff, man. Good to hear from you again. All right, let's dig into the movies. Let's talk about a film that right now is in theaters, and I definitely think you need to give it your time to go see. It's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino's latest and greatest movie. Uh, no, I mean, not his greatest. I'm not going to say that. It's, it's going to be hard for him to ever, in my book, top Pulp Fiction. That, to me, is just one of those movies that changed movies. It, ch- it changed my life. It made me into the you know kind of cinema head that I am these days. And just opened all these new like possibilities of ways to think about stories, the way that a story can be told, um, you know, characters, how they're written, how dialogue is written, what characters talk about in situations where they should be talking about other things. It's it just broke all these rules down for me about what movies were uh, was different than anything I had ever seen before. It was very fresh. So. That one's going to be hard to beat, but I got to tell you, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is as good as anything that he has done, and to me, I really, I like The Hateful Eight a lot. I talked about it when it came out on this show as well, and I said that The Hateful Eight was was the best thing that he had done in years, because I wasn't, Inglorious Bastards I liked, but not to me, not up there with kind of his earlier stuff, with his contemporary stuff. Not up there with Jackie Brown, not up there with Reservoir Dogs to me, even the Kill Bill movies, which I absolutely love. Um, And Django Unchained is probably my least favorite movie that he's ever done. So those to me were just a little bit lesser. And Hateful Eight was really good. I really liked it. It was, uh, you know, much simpler, just kind of one of those great one-room movies where everyone's gathered together in a single room. You're trying to figure out. It was almost like Agatha Christie in a way. Who's the bad guy? Who's the killer here? And really, it turned out that everyone is killers in that room. And every the reason why it was called The Hateful Eight, everybody in that movie was hateful and awful. Uh, but the, but Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is kind of a throwback to his earlier stuff. And it, it feels a lot to me like Jackie Brown because we're set in L.A. again, which is a great setting for Tarantino movies. It's a great setting for movies, period. I love 
when movies are set in L.A. I just love it because those filmmakers know that town. They know the places to shoot. The scouting location people know exactly where to go. They've seen things, kept notes. Uh, I mean, this is the town where they live. So, of course, and it's a, just a great setting for a movie because it's such an interesting town. It's just a great-looking place. The weather's fantastic. It's where you want to be, you know. I mean, New York movies are great, too. 70s New York movies are probably my favorite setting period for a film ever. But those movies are gloomy, and they're, those movies are good for that setting because it's a dark place, and it's kind of a grim place. And it's exciting, but it's not in the same way as L.A. It's not airy and light. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood just perfectly captures the feeling of what makes California and what makes Los Angeles a place that so many of us want to go and check out because it just seems like this magical place where everyone's driving around in cool cars, everyone looks good, the weather's fantastic, the music's awesome, and uh, it's just uh, it's just a cool place. And it's yeah, everything's kind of phony, but th- that's all right. You know, like I said with Stranger Things, it's just one of those. Phony is that's kind of what we need sometimes, right? Especially in these times. So, I really loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I was just enthralled by this the whole way through. It was two and a half hours long, and I really wanted it to be longer. Honestly, this thing could have been four hours long, keeping the same pace, staying with the same characters, whatever. Just more scenes. And if the director's cut comes out and it's four hours long, I will be there for it. Because I would have been fine with another hour and a half of movie. This, Like I said, two and a half hours long. Doesn't feel like it at all. Zoomed right by for me. And I just kept wanting more. So the movie, in case you haven't seen it, what it is, it's set in 1969. And it is set in Los Angeles. It's set in the movie business, the television business, really. Just, let's say, entertainment. And it follows a guy who's kind of a little bit of a washed-up actor played by Leonardo DiCaprio. His best days are behind him as a big movie star. Now he's settling for a role in, a, um, in TV shows, guest spots in TV series, and uh, you know, going overseas to make movies as well. And he, is, he and his best friend is his stuntman, who's played by Brad Pitt, his stunt double. And they've worked together for years, and... What Brad Pitt's character really is is more than a stunt double. He's more of like his assistant almost. He kind of does things for him around the house. He he goes and gets him, you know, his drinks and and things like that. But they're really they have a great friendship. It's not like DiCaprio doesn't you know denigrate him. He doesn't treat him like a servant or something like that. These guys are just they're tight, and he's helping him out. You know what I mean? He's paying him and keeping him employed and keeping him in this you know, in this town. So it's, uh, and it's just about these two guys. And also, uh, they happen to live next door. Well, DiCaprio anyway, lives next door to, uh, Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. And the movie is kind of coinciding with obviously the tragedy that happened at, uh, Tate's house when the Manson family came and killed her and all of her guests. So that's what's happening in this movie. And the Manson family do play, you know, a pretty big part in the film as well, but it's more really about DiCaprio, uh, his character and Pitt's character, their relationship and the business of Hollywood and just DiCaprio's journey of becoming okay with being a guy who's more of a character actor and not going to be such a, you know, a huge star in the town anymore. Can he make that transition in his life? This is not a plot movie. Like I said, reminds me a lot of Jackie Brown because Jackie Brown is a hangout movie. That's the way you describe that film. First time you watch Jackie Brown, Again, two-and-a-half-hour movie, set in L.A. This one, That one's set in the 90s. It's not a period piece. It came out in the 90s. The first time you see that movie, you're you're almost bored because you're like, what is happening? I thought this was a heist movie. I thought that I was going to be watching some great crime flick. 
But that's not what it is. It does have a big heist in it, and it is really well done how they take care of it. But it's not about that. It's just kind of about getting to know these really strange characters in this really gorgeous town and and uh hearing this music that they're listening to and checking out what they're watching on tv and getting to know these people and that's what makes it a tarantino movie that when i think of a tarantino movie that's exactly what i think of i don't necessarily think of the stuff in kill bill where it's high action all the time i just think about hanging out with characters because that's what pulp fiction was that's what reservoir dogs was as well it was a heist movie where you didn't even see the heist it was just you were just hanging out with the robbers the whole time and hearing them talk about madonna and shit like that so Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is more like that. There's no, not a lot of plot going on here, but I will say the final 20 minutes of the movie are very high-octane, very intense, and a blast to watch. I had a smile on my face the entire like, you know, final climactic you know, moment of this movie. Just the last 20 minutes of it, I was smiling the whole time. I was pretty much smiling the whole time during the entire movie because I just loved listening to the dialogue so much, and the performances are so good. Pitt at his absolute best. I've never liked Margot Robbie more in anything. She's not one of my favorite actors. Uh, she was, you know, fine in uh, Wolf of Wall Street. But, I mean, she, her character was so unlikable that it made her kind of unlikable as well. But she's just never really blown me away in anything. I didn't see I, Tanya, but um, that was kind of one of the reasons why I didn't really want to see it. I just didn't care that much. And Tanya Harding, I've seen, heard her story enough times. You know, for two lifetimes, but she was really good in this as Sharon Tate, and and really uh, likable and um, charming, just as you would think that that person you would think that she would be, because she charmed kind of everybody back then. Everybody liked Sharon Tate. So uh, this movie, like I said, I think it should win Best Picture because first off, it's got the whole thing of Tarantino is a legendary filmmaker. He's never, none of his movies have ever won Best Picture, even though a couple of them have been worthy of it. Pulp Fiction's the big one that just, when it lost to Forrest Gump, that's one of the all-time classic, you know, head scratchers in Oscars history uh, of a movie that should have won but didn't win. But I think it'll, I think it could win this year because it's about the movie business. Hollywood loves those kind of movies that make the movie business look good. And this one does. It doesn't make the business look fake. It doesn't make the business look awful and shallow like a lot of movies do. It doesn't rip the business apart. It's kind of like a love letter to Hollywood and to Los Angeles in general. So there's a lot of positive vibes coming from this movie. You're not going to end up feeling bad at the end of it, even though it's got the Manson family in it. I'm just telling you, you're not going to end up walking away from this thing feeling depressed. This is a very feel-good movie. In the end, and just such a ride, man. It's so it's just fun to spend time with this movie and these characters. And I have to give Tarantino a ton of credit because so he sets out to make a movie that involves the Manson family, Charles Manson and his merry band of of cultist killers. And th these people have been so mythologized in American culture, like they are so feared and so legendary that they're some of the most well-known people to come out of the 60s, even though what they essentially did was in the hippie era, and they were just brutal and uh, and frightening. But people are, like, obsessed with them, as we usually are with killers in, in general. And so Tarantino sets out to make a movie about the Manson family, and he makes them look like total boobs instead of mythologizing them even further. It would have been so tempting 
to make Charles Manson be this like frightening villain and to make these guys and these women be like these scary people that that's the way a lot of us think of them. But instead he kind of just makes them look stupid really. And just belittles them and makes the whole thing just look pointless. So I really, I give him a lot of credit for that because it would have been tempting to, again, further mythologize these people, but he didn't do it. So I give him a lot of credit for that. A lot of writers would have, would have gone the other way, would have been too worried about it. But without giving anything away, he just makes them look pretty stupid in the end. Every actor, or every scene, I should say, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood also has some great actor in it. This movie is just loaded with like bit cameo parts by great actors, whether it's, you know, Al Pacino showing up for one scene, Bruce Dern showing up for a scene and being absolutely fantastic. Kurt Russell showing up for a minute. I mean, there's just, there's so many great actors in this Margaret Qualley, who I've talked about multiple times on this series or on this podcast, I should say being, you know, one of my favorite young actors out there. And, uh Mikey Madison from Better Things, really good actor. Maya Hawke, who I talked about before. Again, she's in this for like one scene, and she's so good in that one scene. It just makes me so excited to see her in more things. This this movie has such a great cast, but it's, it gets to be disappointing because you're like, oh, man, I wanted to see that character more. Like Margaret Qualley's character, I wanted to see her more. I was sad that she, when she disappeared, she was gone from the movie. I kind of wanted to see more scenes with her. So... I hope again that the Blu-ray comes out and it's like four hour long movie because I just want more scenes with everyone in this thing. My only complaint uh, about the movie is probably that is that the side characters are all in it for only a scene or two. And I wanted there, there to be more of them. So when my only complaint is that I wish it was longer, that's usually a good sign for the movie. But uh, if you are into old cars, if you're just into Hollywood myths, Hollywood history, if you like the business of television, of entertainment, how it's done, you know, the music from that era, the neon lights, the sights and the sounds, all of it is just electric in this movie. This is just such a fun movie to watch, and it was just such a departure and a little bit of escapism from everything that's going on in the world right now, but really well done and really unique as well. Uh, I, I recommend you definitely to see this movie on the big screen. It looks fantastic. It sounds great. And it's just a fun movie. If you can't enjoy watching this movie, then I, I don't know if you're someone that I would want to know, honestly. Because it's just everything about it is so well done and so fun and, and good-natured, honestly, that it's uh, it's just great. It's just mo- filmmaking at its best. And this is one of those movies that's special. I think it's going to last a long time in people's memories. And if it wins Best Picture, obviously it will. And I think it deserves to do that. We haven't seen everything that this year has to offer us but so far right now definitely my favorite movie of 2019 and just uh one of my favorites from tarantino ever i I mean i pretty much love everything he's done but uh for him to stay at that level and continue to make these great movies and for him to go back to kind of the the type of filmmaking that made him a legend to begin with was really exciting for me because i just love those old movies i love pulp fiction i love Jackie Brown so much and this one was a lot like those again very much like Jackie Brown a lot like it so if you like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and you never saw Jackie Brown give it a watch I think you'll really uh, really dig it they're both both really good and kind of kind of similar in a lot of ways but I, I couldn't recommend this one more if you haven't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yet go check it out just, just look just, just just put them in the wardrobe alright what's it gonna hurt then if you need them you got them alright <laughs> then I gotta have a conversation with that wardrobe assistant and man she's a bitch i just don't 
Please, look, I, look Randy, I, I'm asking you to help me out, man. If the, if the answer is no, the, the answer is no. Not, not no with excuses. Hey, man. This ain't a Andy McLaughlin picture, you know. And I can't afford to hire a bunch of guys that smoke cigarettes and sit around talking to each other all day on the chance that I might use them. I got a four-man team here, Rick. If I need more than that, I got to get it approved. And, you know, I, I, I got to look after my dudes. Hey, hey and, and if your dudes were a better match for me, I'd say, oh, okay, you got me. But, but, but that, that's not the case, and you know it. He, he's a great match for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, no. Hey, you could do anything you want to him. Throw him off a building, right? Light him on fire. Hit him with a Lincoln, right? Get creative. Do whatever you want. He's just he's happy for the opportunity. Rick? Yeah. I don't dig him. And I don't dig the vibe he brings on a set. Speaking of best picture winners, um, let me talk about one that I watched recently that I really didn't like very much at all. That is 2018's best picture winner, Green Book. It won it actually in 2019, but it was for the year 2018. And this was the movie that had Mahershala Ali and Viggo Mortensen in it as these two guys based on a true story, you know, all that, all that stuff. Uh, Mahershala Ali played this piano player who was this great, like virtuoso classical pianist back in the 1960s. He decides to go on a tour of the you know of the deep south and he takes along with him Vigo Mortensen's character who is this like Italian guy from New York never left New York in his life you know it, uh, New York I should say is in his blood but so is Italy and he's you know he's this racist guy and he ends up taking the job because he needs the money and of course along the way they end up forming this friendship and you know, lessons are learned and everyone learns to love each other and all that stuff. So it's all very like if I tell you that plot, you can probably predict about 15 scenes that you think will be in this movie and you will be right on all 15 of them. They all happen. It follows the playbook that has been laid out by other movies like this. These race relations movies, these kind of uh I should say like light race relations, race relations movies that are made by white directors, not the ones that are made by black directors like this, like do the right thing is probably the best movie ever made about race relations to me. And of course, it was made by Spike Lee, black man. Uh, The movie is filled with energy. It's filled with angst and anger, as you would think a movie that was made by a minority about minorities kind of and where they fit in in our society, that's how you would expect a movie like that to be. You wouldn't expect it to be kind of full of laughs and fun, even though do the right thing does have its, you know, plenty of laughs in it as well. Uh, But green book is one of those that kind of is like, you know, the white director version of a race relations movie. It's like driving miss Daisy, something like that. It's just, it, it all is very obvious and it just feels too good. Right. It makes you if it, if a movie about race in the 1960s makes you want to go back to the 1960s and be there, then it's doing it wrong because you shouldn't want to go back to that because it's awful. It was awful. And that's why I always like Mad Men so much, because Mad Men didn't want didn't make you want to live in the 60s. It made it showed you how shitty that time was. It showed you how bad the people were and how much they were just like us today. They weren't. It wasn't some magical era where every like all the music was great and the the clothes were great and all that. Who cares? Because everything else that's going on is so rotten, and that's why I always thought Mad Men was great because it just shattered the myth that this was some magical time period. 
And Green Book is one of those that kind of makes it look colorful and fun and and cool to be around back then, but it it really wasn't. I mean, it was a it was a very tense and fraught time. So, but again, everything's so obvious with Green Book and overacted. I mean, scenery is being chewed left and right, especially by Viggo Mortensen. I am shocked though that a movie that's trying to preach a message of tolerance and the dangers of stereotyping someone, which is essentially what the theme, main theme of Green Book is because Vigo's character is stereotyping, you know, um, Hershel Ali's character. Most of the time, when he first gets to know him, he just he thinks he wants to do all the things that other black people that he's read, you know, read about and seen on TV do. So why doesn't he do? Why doesn't he eat fried chicken and all this kind of shit? Um, and it kind of comes off as condescending because it's the movie then feels like, well, is he like trying to teach him how to be a, a black person? Like, is he teaching him what's what? what black people do like this, some white guy who doesn't even like black people. So it's just really weird and conflicting. But anyway, I'm very shocked that a movie that preaches a message of tolerance and the dangers of stereotyping people would be filled to the brim with so many Italian American stereotypes. Every Italian American stereotype you can think of comes out in this movie. I mean, it's like every person who is from an an Italian descent, in the movie Green Book, is either hooked up, or they work at a like a you know a pizzeria or something like that, or they're racist, and they love to eat together, you know all the time. These big meals—it's all the typical crap that you see, you know, in anything that has Italian Americans in it. But it's not like The Sopranos where it's done with a knowing eye. Like, yes, these are stereotypes, and we're going to look at them, we're going to break them down, and talk about why they exist it's just because it's easy you know all the actors come out of central casting and they just they they play it up so much um it's just stereotypes across the board and the idea again of a white guy teaching a black guy about how to be black is just offensive and stupid so that's why there was blowback against this movie and i kind of wanted to see it for myself to understand it and i get it but i do have to say for as problematic as the movie is it is a crowd pleaser. It is a movie that will put smiles on your face, even if you're trying not to have it do that. I mean, it is. A, it does have some funny moments in it, you know, and it's made by one of the Fairley brothers, which is so weird, again, that they're that one of the Fairley brothers is an Oscar-winning director, but whatever. I mean, these are the guys that made Kingpin, which I love that movie, but my God, I mean, we're not talking about Oscar-level stuff here from these guys. They know how to do comedy, though, and so there are some really funny scenes uh, that really did make me laugh in this movie. And Vigo is really funny in it. But, you know, and it's, so it's got tons of charm in it. Laughs, lines of dialogue that are meant to draw applause in a theater. Had all that. But again, I could see it all coming a mile away, so it just wasn't surprising. Didn't open my eyes in any way to anything that I didn't already know. You know, this is a message that I've already seen done in a million movies before. I've seen it done better in other ones. So I just was like, why? Why did we need this, really? And the music in the movie wasn't even that good. It's a music movie. The music scenes weren't weren't very long, weren't very exciting, weren't shot that well. Uh, you know, there certainly wasn't some of the best piano playing I've ever seen in a movie. It was all kind of shot far away, and you could hear it, and it wasn't anything that thrilling. You know what I mean? If you want to see great piano playing in a movie, go watch Shine. Uh, don't watch this one. But, uh, yeah, I just was... You know, it was just one of those movies that you'd give it a three-star rating or something like that. You know, I mean, it was okay, but it's not Best Picture winning material. So, I mean, it's all the stuff that you've seen in a movie about race a hundred times already. 
So Mahershala Ali, very good in it. Again, you know, he won an Oscar. I don't know about all that. Don't think it was worth him winning an Oscar for this. It wasn't like his performance in Moonlight. It wasn't that revelatory. This was just okay. But again, he proves himself to be one of the best actors there is in the business right now. So he was very good in it, very confident, very sure of himself. And I got to say, though, I've probably never liked Viggo Mortensen less in anything. And he's a guy I typically like in everything. He was just so, I mean, it was just overacting city. And it was such a big stereotype of all Italian Americans, you know, that you've ever seen. Uh, and it just felt, you know, wrong kind of, and, and just weird. I don't know. I, I just didn't, I just didn't like his performance in it. It was just way too much, way, way too much. And not in a good way, uh, either not in like Faye Dunaway and mommy dearest way. It was, it was just kind of that bad overacting, but yeah, I would easily rank this as one of the worst best picture winners that I have ever seen. Anyway, it's, it's way down there, down there with Forrest Gump to me. And at but at least Gump, you know, has like some really funny moments, classic immortal lines that will live on forever that I still quote all the time. Um, this one doesn't have any of that. It's just one of those that I'll forget about and move on. So I was, you know, it was what I was expecting, but I still ended up kind of being disappointed that this would win best picture. So those are my thoughts on green book. Did you have any thoughts on it? What did, what did you think? I mean, again, it's a crowd pleasing movie. I could see it playing in a theater and everyone applauding in the end, white people, especially in the audience, but it just was, not necessary. I don't know. It's just too obvious. Why the hell did this thing win Best Picture? I just don't get it. The Oscars are so stupid sometimes. Anyway, write me if you have any thoughts on it. TheClintDavis at gmail.com. T-H-E ClintDavis at gmail.com. I've got the bucket so you could have some. I've never had fried chicken in my life. Who you bullshitting? You people love the fried chicken, the grits and the collard greens. I love it too. Negro cooks used to make it all the time when I was in the Army. You have a very narrow assessment of me, Tony. Yeah, right? I'm good. No, no, you're not good. You're bad. I'm saying just because other Negroes enjoy certain types of music, it doesn't mean I have to, nor do we all eat the same kind of food. True. Wait a minute. If you said all guineas like pizza and spaghetti and meatballs, I'm not going to get assaulted. You're missing the point for you to make the assumption that every Negro... Hey, you want some or not? No. Hey, come on. Tell me that don't smell good. It, huh? it smells okay. I prefer not to get grease on my blanket. All right, finally, I'm going to tell you a couple of uh, movies that are streaming on Netflix and Amazon right now. But before I do that, real quick, I want to tell you the best thing I watched this month. And uh, you can follow along with what I'm watching on Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis, Mr. Clint Davis. And uh, the best thing I watched this month. It was a tough one. I had a lot of, I didn't have any this month that really like joined my instant favorites, but the, the one that came the closest, I think has to be 1972's last tango in Paris, legendary movie. One of those classic, uh, groundbreakers that was, I think it was Pauline kale, uh, that said when it came out that it was going to change movies forever. And there were going to be all these Roger Ebert said that he thought there were going to be like erotic, R-rated movies that were like borderline pornography. He thought those were going to, that was really going to become a popular genre, like art house porn, basically. And that's what Last Tango in Paris kind of was. But it ended up being the only one. It was a hit. Critics loved it. And audiences actually loved it, too. There were lines around the, you know, the theaters to go see this movie when it came out. Because it was just kind of new. It had so much graphic sex in it. And people thought, you know, that they were, that Maria Schneider and Marlon Brando were really having sex in the movie. They weren't, of course, but. 
it was just one of those legendary like cult phenomenon movies. But it's kind of one of it. It's it's its own thing. There's no other movie really quite like it. That's quite this erotic and interesting. Eyes Wide Shut probably comes as close as anything that's been made since. Uh, from Stanley Kubrick in 1999. But Last Tango in Paris, all it's about, simple plot, two people, Maria Schneider plays this young French woman. Uh, who She's probably like, I think she was 19 years old when the movie was made, and I think she's supposed to be about 19 years old. She's supposed to be an adult for sure. She uh, you know, goes to check out this apartment in Paris, and she's engaged to some guy, but she goes by herself, and while she's there, she meets Marlon Brando's character, who is at this point he's in his forties. Uh, he is has been married, but his wife just killed herself, so he's going through you know a ton of just pent up grief and frustration over that situation that we get into in the movie. And they meet and they just have sex the first time they meet. They don't even know each other's names. They it's one of, that's their rule. We're not going to tell each other our names. They continue to meet in this abandoned apartment every so often. Uh, you know, to have sex. And that's that's really, and it, it gets into their characters and kind of what drives them. And the movie is just so well acted. It is just an acting clinic from start to finish. Brando is as good as he's ever been in anything. And you got to remember, this is the same year that The Godfather came out. So you watch him in this, you hear his accent in this, you look at how he looks, and then you see him in The Godfather as like kind of this old man, head of a family, using that classic voice that he used with the you know the the big jowls and stuff. Totally different looking guy, sounding guy. Doesn't even seem like the same guy. Same exact person, same year uh, that these came out. So Brando was just firing on all cylinders at this point, and uh, it would kind of be the beginning of the end of his career as being one of the. I mean, you know, arguably the greatest actor of all time. So, and Maria Schneider, she's like 19 years old. She's acting across from Brando, who already at this point is known as probably the best screen actor ever. And she doesn't back down at all. She's obviously not nearly as, as um, you know, kind of in your face or as confident as he is in this movie. But, uh, I mean, she's just brilliant. And I thought she was so natural and, and really, you know, perfect for the part. It, it's so sad that this movie becomes hard to watch because it ruined her career basically it kind of ruined her life almost she ended up you know having suicide attempts and stuff like that because bernardo bertolucci the director who was just kind of like a well-known sleaze uh i mean he he uh, lied to her she felt like he took advantage of her he didn't tell her about uh you know the the classic the butter scene as it's known the sex scene between uh her and brando she didn't know about it and he didn't tell her about it on purpose because he wanted her to get her honest reaction of what was going to happen in that scene so it comes off as like a rape on screen even though they're not really having sex there it's just it, but it's hard to watch because she said that the tears in that scene are real tears because she really felt violated so it's awful um in that way, but I think she's really good in this movie, and I think uh, the movie itself is fantastic, and it's 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 tough to watch at times, but it's a tour de force, and it's intense. There's not really anything like it, so I think as a piece of cinema history, it deserves to be seen. It deserves to be remembered, and uh, that's my favorite thing that I watched this month, Last Tango in Paris from 1972. Brando may have never been better. That might honestly might have been his best work was right there in that movie. That is tough to say, but I think he is... God damn, I mean, he's so good in it. Just electric. 
All right, movies now streaming. Something for you, uh, a couple things for you on Netflix and a couple things for you on Amazon. Good month this month. Something funny for you. From 1991 on Netflix, it is The Addams Family. I got to tell you, a little bit of slim pickings for the comedies on Netflix. But this one I really do like. It's funny. It comes from Barry Sonnenfeld. Um, it ended up spawning a sequel because it was a big hit. Uh, Raul Julia is so good as Gomez Adams, and you've got Angelica Houston, you got Christopher Lloyd, Christina Ricci, who was a huge. I had such a big crush on her and Wednesday Adams in this movie. I thought Wednesday Adams and well, specifically Christina Ricci was so hot in this movie when I watched it when I was a kid, even though I didn't really really know what that meant. Um, but I just I had a huge crush on her, so I loved this movie. I thought it was so funny. And uh, still funny to this day. I've seen it uh, more recently, and it's still good. So that one's on Netflix right now, uh, The Addams Family from 1991. Something more serious for you on Netflix. I talked about it. I raved about it before. Jackie Brown from 1997. So if you never got around to Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown, and again, if you saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and you liked it, turn on Netflix and watch Jackie Brown. You will love it. Check it out in HD. It's, it's a great-looking movie. It's just a cool movie. Turn it on you know, during the day. Maybe have a smoke with it, have a drink, and and uh, just sit back and hang out with these characters. It's, it's it's a blast. It's a fantastic cast as well. Really good. Pam Greer is fantastic in that movie. Amazon, something funny for you streaming now on Amazon Prime. We've got Dumb and Dumber from 1994. I'm looking at Andy Sedlak with this one because I know it's probably his favorite comedy ever made. He said many times he thinks it's still the funniest movie ever made. I, I mean, it's... It is tough to argue with, especially at our age. We saw it at that time, and but as an adult now, still so funny, t- full of great lines, um, some brilliant writing, some great acting from Jeff Daniels and from Jim Carrey, uh, and it's just kind of an unforgettable movie. I mean, who can forget when he pops the cork uh, on that champagne and shoots the endangered owl and kills it at the benefit for the endangered owls. It's just good stuff. Boy, this party really died. I mean, there's there's a million great lines in that movie, and uh, I never get tired of watching it. I laugh every time I check it out. So Dumb and Dumber is now for you on Amazon if for whatever reason you never watched it or if you just needed to check it out again. And from 1968 on Amazon, something serious for you. Rosemary's Baby. I think it's maybe the scariest movie ever made. When I'm ever, whenever I'm asked that, what what movie scares you more than any others? Rosemary's Baby is usually my answer. I think it just the premise. I think uh, Mia Farrow is so vulnerable in this movie. How could you not be when you're pregnant? I mean, you can't get much more vulnerable than that as an adult human being, and uh, just her frailness and. The, everyone taking advantage of her. It's just such a frightening movie, and there's just no out for her. There's just no way out. She's just caught. Everyone's in on it, and it's just this great conspiracy movie that's also so horrific and scary. Um, I just think Rosemary's Baby is just a, a powerhouse. If you've never seen it, yeah, I don't know why you've you waited so long, but check it out on Amazon. It's 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 fantastic. You'll love it, and it is so scary. Still, to this day, I think it's probably the scariest movie ever made. So, Roman Polanski, at his best, right there. And that is on Amazon for you right now. All right, that's going to do it for another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Thanks for hanging out with us here. Uh, Again, we'll check you out next month. I'm actually going to Ireland. Beth and I are taking a trip there, leaving in about a week. So, I will talk to you when I get back uh, from Ireland. I'll tell you about uh, my time over there. I don't know if I'll be checking out any movies or anything out there, but... They do have a really nice indie cinema close to where our hotel is in Dublin. So uh, who knows? Maybe I'll wander over there and check that out. 
Uh, but yeah, I'll give you a full rundown on it next time, and we'll talk shows again. We'll talk uh, about the fourth season of Transparent. I'm going to talk about that next time here on the Stream Police. Uh, again, thanks to Andy Sedlak for joining us, uh, and you can reach him anytime at sedlakjournal at gmail.com, S-E-D-L-A-K, journal at gmail.com. You can reach me at theclintdavis at gmail.com, T-H-E, Clint Davis at gmail. And you can hit me on Instagram and on Twitter at Mr. Clint Davis, M-R, Clint Davis. Thanks for hanging out, my friend. Until next time, stream on. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.